0: Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. When we last had a main episode, we left Charles Darwin in South America, busy collecting fossils, studying fauna and laying the groundwork for theories of continental uplift. Today, we will take the next stage of the voyage to follow him round the Cape and then into the Pacific. For a stop off with those infamous tortoises and hopefully finally home again. If you are a new listener, you really need to go back and listen to episodes 47 and 48 on Darwin. They will give you the start of the voyage and they have slots in them. And slots are the besty little boop machines. Today might involve tortoises, which some people also find cute. And the beagle left the eastern coast of South America. It would actually take two trips around Tierra del Fuego, and its various comings and goings and backtracking are rather difficult to follow. The first was an exploration down to Tierra del Fuego, then back to the Falkland Islands, before going back up to Montevideo, then down again to the Cape, pottering round for a bit and round into the Pacific. All the time, Darwin was collecting fossils and specimens. I'm not going through every twist and turn of HMS Beagle's trip. It is interesting, but involves so much backtracking and crisscrossing that it's very hard to keep straight. Also, one of my greatest pet peeves is people in history using the same damn name for rivers and places so often. How many Rio Santos whatevers do you think there are in the world. Too bloody many for a poor history podcaster. What you really need to know now is that to leave South America and get to the Pacific, Darwin faced a difficult and dangerous trip round the southern tip of South America, then up into the Pacific. The end of South America is the Tierra del Fuego Archipelago. There are various channels of water through the islands that make up the archipelago. The most famous. Was the Strait of Magellan. Which was the most northerly. And was difficult to navigate. To map and explore the islands of the archipelago. HMS Beagle would have to go further south. She would eventually survey a second channel. That would be named after her. These two channels. Would be crucial routes. round the south of America to the Pacific. Until the building the Panama Canal. More feared was the trip to the islands at the very south and round them the dreaded Cape Horn and Drake's passage into the fearsome seas near the Antarctic. The Beagle stopped at various points in Tierra del Fuego and Darwin's account really brings home the incredible isolation of the party. Even today this is an incredibly remote and sparsely settled region, Darwin recorded, quote, I will describe our first arrival in Tierra del Fuego. A little after noon we doubled Cape St. Diego, and entered the famous Strait of La Merie. We kept close to the Fugian shore, but the outline of the rugged, inhospitable Statenland, was visible amidst the clouds. In the afternoon we anchored in the bay of good success. While entering, we were saluted, in a manner becoming the inhabitants of this savage land. A group of Phrygians, partly concealed by the entangled forest, were perched on a wild point overhanging the sea, and as we passed by, they sprang up and, waving their tattered cloaks, sent forth a loud, sonorous shout. The savages followed the ship, and just before dark, we saw their fire again and heard their wild cry. End quote. At this point, they negotiated with the local Fugians, and Darwin is incredibly condescending about them. You can feel the tone of Georgian and late Victorian gentleman who regards anyone not from Europe as a pure savage. Still, condescension was one thing; Fitzroy was engaged in unthinking cruelty. On his previous trip, he had been to this spot and one of the ship's longboats had been violently stolen by some of the native people. In return, Fitzroy had arranged to kidnap a number of the native people as hostages and purchase a 15-year-old boy in exchange for a button as a warning against attacking visiting sailors. You know already that he and Darwin had violently disagreed over Fitzroy's support of slavery, but in this case, Fitzroy had decided to bring them back to England, and in his view, civilise them, and save their souls by Christianising them. After that, he planned to return them home, to spread the light of Christ and civilization amongst their people. When you look at it coldly, in the light of 21st century logic, it is both cruel and amazingly stupid. But it wasn't at all uncommon in the 16th to the early 19th centuries. The natives were mostly pleased to be back amongst their own people. Some had picked up some English and Spanish. The young boy was named Orandelico, but called Jeremy Button. He had picked up a lot of English very quickly and was fond of mirrors and dressing well. He is rather famous and has been the subject of books, plays and a film. Needless to say, Fitzroy's hopes of a proselytising mission were an abject failure. Darwin continued his account, The harbour consists of a fine piece of water half surrounded by low rounded mountains of clay slate which are covered to the water's edge by one dense gloomy forest and a single glance at the landscape was sufficient to show me how wildly different it was anything I had ever beheld. At night it blew a gale of wind, and heavy squalls from the mountains swept past us. It would have been a bad time out at sea, and we, as well as others, may call this good success bay. End quote. Can't you just feel the cold, the isolation, the feeling that you are at the edges of the world. Darwin continued to explore and wrote that, quote, the next day, I attempted to penetrate some way into the country. Tierra del Fuego may be described as a mountainous land, partly submerged in the sea, so that deep inlets and bays occupy the place where valleys should exist. The mountainsides, except on the exposed western coast, are covered from the water's edge upwards by one great forest. The trees reach to an elevation between a thousand and fifteen hundred feet and are succeeded by a band of peat with a minute alpine plants and this again is succeeded by the line of perpetual snow which according to Captain King in the Strait of Magellan descends to between three thousand four thousand feet to find an acre of level land in any part of the country is most rare I recollect only one little flat piece near Port Famine and another of rather larger extent near Gorey Road in both places and everywhere else the surface is covered by a thick bed of swampy peat even within the forest the ground is concealed by mass of slowly putrefying vegetable matter which from being soaked with water yields to the foot finding it nearly hopeless to push my way through the wood I followed the course of a mountain torrent. At first, from the waterfalls and number of dead trees, I could hardly crawl along, but the bed of the stream soon became a little more open, from the floods having swept the sides. I continued slowly to advance for an hour along the broken rocky banks, and was amply repaid by the grandeur of the scene. The gloomy depth of the ravine wall accorded With the universal signs of violence, on every side were lying irregular masses of rock and torn up trees. Other trees, though still erect, were decayed to the heart and ready to fall. The entangled mass of the thriving and the fallen reminded me of the forests within the tropics. Yet there was a difference. For in these still solitudes, death instead of life seemed the predominant spirit. End quote. Bleak, beautiful, storm-racked, and isolated as it was, this was the easy bit. They would have to ground at some point the tip of South America. The challenge was daunting. As one of my favorite websites, the NASA Earth Observatory says, quote, southwest of Cape Horn, ocean floor rises sharply from 4,000 meters (13,000). 200 feet deep to 100 meters 330 feet deep within a few kilometers this sharp difference combined with the potent westerly winds that swirl around the furious 50s pushes up massive waves with frightening regularity add in frigid water temperatures, rocky coastal shoals and stray icebergs which drift north from the Antarctic across the Drake Passage and it is easy to see why the area is known as a graveyard for ships, End quote. Imagine facing that area in the HMS Beagle, a ship that could be politely described as very badly suited for sailing, even in good weather. This was a small wooden ship. The seams would have leaked seawater, and she would have bobbed up and down in the vast waves, her planks creaking water rushing down any open hatches, masts swaying and sails taut as the wind screamed through the rigging. Once she started her trip round the Cape, passengers couldn't get off if they felt seasick or hated the floor suddenly falling 20 feet as the ship slowly clawed its way onwards. If your imagination fails you at this point, Darwin and Captain Fitzroy have left a description of the moment they nearly died. Darwin recalled, on the 11th of January 1833, by carrying a press of sail, we fetched within a few miles of the great rugged mountain, York Minster, so-called by Captain Cook, and the origin of the name of the elder Fulgian, when a violent swarm compelled us to shorten sail and stand out to sea. The surf was breaking fearfully on the coast, and the spray was carried over a cliff, estimated to 200 feet in height. On the 12th, the gale was very heavy, and we did not know exactly where we were. It was a most unpleasant sound to hear constantly repeated, keep a good lookout to leeward. On the 13th, the storm raged with its full fury. Our horizon was narrowly limited by the sheets of spray borne by the wind. The sea looked ominous, like a dreary waving plain with patches of drifted snow. Whilst the ship laboured heavily, the albatross glided with its expanded wings right up in the wind. At noon, a great sea broke over us and filmed one of the whaleboats, which was obliged to be instantly cut away. The poor beagle trembled at the shock and for a few minutes would not obey her helm but soon like the good ship that she was she righted and came up to the wind again had another sea followed the first our fate would have been decided soon and forever ever. Captain Fitzroy had a better understanding of how close they came to dying quote, at three in the morning of the 13th the vessel lurched so deeply and the main mast bent and quivered so much that I reluctantly took in the main topsail, small as it was when close reefed leaving set only the storm trysails sails close reef and the four stay sail I have always succeeded in carrying a close reefed main topsail in the beagle excepting on this and two other occasions were I again in similar circumstances I think I should try to carry it even then some time longer at 10 there was so continued a heavier rush of wind that even the diminutive trysails pressed the vessel too much and they were still further reduced. Soon after one, the sea had risen to a great height and I was anxiously watching the successive waves when three huge rollers approached whose size and steepness at once told me that our sea boat, good as she was, would be sorely tried. Having steerage way, the vessel met and rose over the first unharmed, but of course her way was checked. The second deadened her way completely, throwing her off the wind, and the third great sea, taking her right abeam, turned her so far over that formed the lee bulwark, from the cathead to the stern divot it was two or three feet under water. For a moment, Our position was critical, but, like a cask, she rolled back again. Though with some feet of water over the whole deck, had another sea struck her then, the little ship might have been numbered among the many of her class which have disappeared. The crisis was past. She shook the sea off through her ports, and was none the worse, excepting the loss of a leak water boat, which, although carried three feet higher than in the former voyage, was dipped under water and torn away. It was well that all our hatchways were thoroughly secured, and that nothing heavy could break adrift. But little water found its way to the lower deck, though Mr. Darwin's collections, in the poop and the forecastle cabins on deck, were much injured. End quote. So much had hinged on that moment. In the storm, the sails had had to be reduced to their tiniest amount. The ship was hit by a wave large enough stop her making forward progress. The second wave not only stopped her moving, critically turned her sideways on to the wind and waves. This is the most dangerous position to be in during a storm and rough seas. A ship should always keep her bow pointed into even the largest waves and the wind in her sails. By losing the wind and turning, HMS Beagle was now controlled by the ocean rather than her crew. The third wave hit the vulnerable side of the ship and nearly rolled her over. At this crucial moment, you could almost picture history itself holding its breath. Then, slowly, achingly, the deck heaved back above the water and Beagle was upright. The coffin ship survived, perhaps only thanks to Fitzroy's redesign of her and his preparation for the storm. As she travelled, Beagle made slow progress. Stops in sheltered coves were frequent to wait out storms or gather more supplies. The coastline was frequently filled with native tribes and diplomacy was tense, since many tribes were at war with each other or keen to steal from the small boats sent ashore by the Beagle. Today, you can just look on Google for photos of Cape Horn. It is bleak, even on a good day, but I'd recommend You look at some of the photos of the Beagle channel. It is stunning. And HMS Beagle spent a lot of time exploring it. If you are a fan of mountains and ice and storms like me, it looks enticing. As the Beautiful Planet website says, The climate of this region is influenced by many things. It is generally cold and many glaciers are present, which would normally qualify it for the description tundra there is a strong maritime influence and heavy forestation. The average winter temperature in July is 1.3 degrees Celsius, rising to 9.6 degrees Celsius in summer in January. Snowfall is common and can occur in the middle of summer. End quote. It would not be the channel the Beagle used when she made her final course for the Pacific. But it was a dream for a naturalist like Darwin. According to the Ecological Society, a non-exhaustive list of species includes, the South American sea lion, the South American fur seal, the leopard seal, cetaceans like whales like the humpback, sea and minky, dolphins like peels, dusky, burmeisters, porpoises, migratory to partially migratory seabirds, include black-browed albatross, Southern Fulmere, Diving Petrels, Megalanic Penguins, Chilean skoo, and South American Terns. Resident Seabird Species include Southern Giant Petrels, Megalanic Cormorants, Imperial Cormorants, Kelp, and Dolphin Gulls. Terrestrial and Coastal Bird Species include Patagonia's Endemic, Blackish Chinoclades, Kelp Goose, and flightless dreamer ducks End quote. as a naturalist darwin was seeing new species but also gathering data for comparisons he saw his first glacier helped avoid a minor disaster with a ship's boat and had a stretch of the channel named after him darwin sound he recorded huge amounts of geological material and joined on many expeditions the whole trip up and down the archipelago was filmed with danger from native tribes who Darwin regarded with considerable contempt, as he felt that the habit of perfect equality and shared ownership of property prevented more sophisticated government that would in turn lead to civilization. Whether nearly being shot by arrows or menaced on various occasions influenced his views is an unknown point. The Beagle finally decided to go all the way back up to the Straits of Magellan, and head into the Pacific in June 1834. June was winter in the Southern Hemisphere. The days were short. The weather bitter. Food often scarce and rotten. It had taken her years. She went up the coast, and stopped at various islands and parts of the coast of Chile. Darwin found time to explore, and then fall ill. Captain Fitzroy... At this point received a reprimand from the Admiralty for using supplemental craft at his own expense to make his job easier and more efficient. He had a major nervous breakdown, understandable after years of stress, hard work, nearly being killed, and then being essentially dressed down by a bunch of desk jockeys thousands of miles away. He very nearly turned the ship over to his first officer and quit to go back to England after all. It's no good apparently doing a great job in difficult and dangerous circumstances if you are doing it in a way your absentee boss didn't think of. Luckily Fitzroy didn't give up as the expedition would have collapsed and who knows if we would have got Darwin's great works. The various travels round Chile were extremely important for Darwin. He witnessed a volcano and earthquakes. The big earthquake in Chile was mostly minor for Darwin, he was far ashore in a forest, having a lie down, and noticed the shaking, which he likened to being on breaking ice. Captain Fitzroy and many of the Beagle's crew, were in the local port, where the damage was more noticeable. As Darwin recalled, In the forest, as a breeze moved the trees, I felt only the earth tremble, but saw no other effect. Captain Fitzroy and some officers were at the town during the shock, and there the scene was more striking. For Although the houses, from being built of wood, did not fall, they were violently shaken, and the boards creaked and rattled together. The people rushed out of doors in the greatest alarm. It is these accompaniments that create the perfect horror of earthquakes, experienced by all who have thus seen, as well as felt, their effects. Within the forest, it was a deeply interesting, but by no means an awe-exciting phenomenon. The tides very curiously affected. The great shock took place in the time of low water, and an old woman who was on the beach told me that the water flowed very quickly, but not in great waves to the high water mark, then as quickly returned to its proper level. This was also evident by the line of wet sand. The same kind of quick... Quiet movement in the tide happened a few years since at Chelohi during a slight earthquake and created much causeless alarm. In the course of the evening, there were many weaker shocks, which seemed to produce in the harbour the most complicated currents and some of great strength. When HMS Beagle reached the main cities of Taucahuana and Concepcion a few days later, the damage was immense. Darwin said both towns presented the most awful yet interesting spectacle I ever beheld. To a person who had formerly known them it possibly might have been still more impressive for the ruins were so mingled together and the whole scene possessed so little the air of a habitable place that it was scarcely possible to imagine its former condition. The earthquake commenced at half past eleven o'clock in the afternoon. If it had happened in the middle of the night, the greater number of the inhabitants, which in this one province must amount to many thousands, must have perished, instead of less than a hundred. As it was, the invariable practice of running out of doors, the first trembling of the ground, alone saved them. In Concepcion, each house or row of houses stood by itself, a heap or line of ruins, but in Tau Owing to the great wave, little more than one layer of bricks, tiles and timber with here and there a part of a wall left standing could be distinguished. From this circumstance, Concepcion, although not so completely desolated, was a more terrible, and if I may call it so, picturesque sight. The first shock was very sudden. Major Domo at Queraquina told me that the first notice he received of it was finding both the horse he rode and himself rolling together on the ground. Rising up, he was thrown down. He also told me that some cows were standing on the steep side of the island and were rolled into the sea. The great wave caused the destruction of many cattle. On one low island near the head of the bay, seventy animals were washed off and drowned. It is generally thought this has been the worst earthquake ever recorded in Chile. But as the very severe ones occur only after long intervals, this cannot easily be known. Nor indeed would a much worse shock have made any difference, for the ruin was now complete. Innumerable tremblings followed the great earthquake, and within the first twelve days, no less than three hundred were counted. After viewing Concepcion, I cannot understand how the greater number of inhabitants escaped unhurt. The houses in many parts fell outwards, thus forming in the middle of the streets little hillocks of brickwork and rubbish. Mr Rouse, the English consul, told us that he was at breakfast. When the very first movement warned him to run out, he had scarcely reached the middle of the courtyard when one side of his house came thundering down. He retained presence of mind to remember that if he once got on top of that part which had already fallen, he would be safe. Not being able from the motion of the ground to stand, he had crawled up on his hands and knees, and no sooner had he ascended this little eminence than the other side of the house fell in, the great beams sweeping close in front of his head. With his eyes blinded and his mouth choked with the cloud of dust which darkened the sky, at last he gained the street. As shock succeeded shock, at the interval of a few minutes, no one, dared approach the shattered ruins, and no one knew whether his dearest friends and relations were not perishing from the want of help. Those who had saved any property were obliged to keep a constant watch. The thieves prowled about, and at each little trembling of the ground, with one hand they beat their breasts, and cried, Misericordia! And then with the other, filched what they could from the ruins. The thatched roofs fell over the fires, flames burst forth in all parts, hundreds knew themselves ruined, and few had the means of providing food for the day. End quote. It was a devastating event. Eventually, Darwin came up with the idea. That there was a subterranean connection between volcanoes and earthquakes, which was a pretty brilliant insight for someone in eighteen thirty five, using pencils and a few pieces of basic equipment. He was beginning to dream of finding a grand unified theory of geology and felt the surface of the earth was made up of huge sheets of rock that rose and fell and moved as a result of molten material underneath heating and cooling. The uplift from the earthquake alone was enough to show that areas didn't stay geologically static but that earthquake driven uplift would not be sufficient to explain the enormous uplift of land that was previously under the sea and was now at the tops of mountains. It was yet another piece of evidence that catastrophism was not scientifically supportable. Darwin went up into the Andes mountains again and again and began theorising on how mountains were formed. Crucially, he could see how the Andes had acted as a natural barrier separating species on the Atlantic and Pacific sides. He could see how similar but separate environments could lead to different species, yet he could sometimes see the commonalities amongst them. It was worth the altitude sickness he got in the Andes. What was most crucial was his discovery of a fossilised forest at high altitude. In the modern, harsh arid environment, they could not have grown there at that altitude only explanation for them was uplift over a staggering amount of geological time and that meant he had solid scientific evidence for an old earth and for the epochs of time needed for evolution. I know I've mentioned it before but the long time scale was critical for evolution and also to challenge the creationist or young earth models. He wrote quote, It required little geological practice to interpret the marvellous story which this scene at once unfolded. Though I confess I was at first so much astonished that I could scarcely believe the plainest evidence. I saw the spot where a cluster of fine trees once waved their branches on the shores of the Atlantic. When that ocean, now driven back 700 miles, came to the foot of the Andes, I saw that they had sprung from a volcanic soil which had been raised above the level of the sea, and that subsequently this dry land, with its upright trees, had been let down into the depths of the ocean. Vast and scarcely comprehensible as such changes must ever appear, that they have all occurred within a period, recent when compared with the history of the Cordillera, and the Cordillera itself is absolutely modern. As compared with many of the fossiliferous strata of Europe and America, end quote. but another way, if this uplift took place at one inch a century, imagine the vast number of years to crawl that forest up to the height of the modern Andes wherever he went in Chile and Peru, he was finding evidence of uplift of changes over time, vast numbers of species. I can't emphasize enough. That he covered thousands of miles overall on foot or horseback, examining as he went. Remember this when the ignorant say to you, There's no evidence for Darwinism. From Darwin alone, there were years of patiently identified, gathered, and logged evidence, earned in the arid coasts, the stormy seas, the aching climbs up and down the mountainous Andes being bitten by fleas and other insects, and with the sacrifice of much sweat and shoe leather. Earthquakes happened again, and Darwin was frequently ill, but determined. All of this was being fed back to a huge number of scientists in the UK. Darwin constantly shipped samples, letters and drawings back to England, and his progress was followed with great interest. It was scientific collaboration on a grand scale. HMS Beagle might have been to some of the remotest spots on the world, but she was still linked to the scientific community, a community that was excited at the prospect of Darwin's return and the publishing of his detailed account. Good science requires long patient effort, collaboration, and good communication between experts, rather than the myth of the Lone, isolated genius. Indeed, it is surprising that in Chile, Darwin bumped into an old school friend who lived there and offered him a place to stay. It's a small world sometimes. Not all of the locals were interested in science and their attitudes were strikingly common. Quote From Darwin, it was amusing to hear the inhabitants discussing the nature of the fossil shells which I collected almost in the same terms as we used a century ago in Europe, namely whether or not they had been thus born by nature. My geological examination of the country generally created a good deal of surprise amongst the Chilenos. It was long before they could be convinced that I was not hunting for mines. This was sometimes troublesome. I found the most ready way of explaining my employment was to ask them how it was that they themselves were not curious concerning earthquakes and volcanoes? Why some springs were hot and others cold? Why there were mountains in Chile and not a hill in La Plata? These bare questions at once satisfied and silenced the greater number. Some, however, like a few in England who are still a century behind, and thought that all such inquiries were useless and impious, and that it was quite sufficient that God, had thus made the mountains. End quote. In September 1835, HMS Beagle set sail for the Galapagos Islands in the Pacific. It was here Darwin would meet the infamous tortoises. I promised you tortoises today because they are famous and people seem to love them, despite them being like elderly rocks. Seriously, can we go back to sloths? Have you seen how cute a baby sloth is? No? Okay. Anyway, the Galampagos Islands were in fact a naturalist's paradise. Besides the mobile cabbage-eating rock things, there were a vast number of species in the various islands. It was staggering how full of life the pre-industrial world was. Darwin really did get some very important evidence here. It is also where you get some of the clearest and most striking precursors of his main theory. Quote, Seeing this gradation and diversity of structure, in one small, intimately related group of birds, one might really fancy, from an original paucity of birds in this archipelago, one species had been taken and modified for different ends. In a like manner, it might be fancied that a bird, originally a buzzard, had been introduced here, Undertake the office of carrying feeding polybora of the American continent. Darwin was in paradise. He noted that even though the islands were close by and with similar climates, the species were remarkably varied. Even the tortoises were identifiable with individual islands with variations in their shells. The excitement leaps from his writing and He noted how popular and tasty the tortoises were. Local islanders could get up to 200 pounds of meat from one giant tortoise and plenty of fat. There was a lifetime's work, study and new things to discover. He lamented that, It is the fate of most voyagers no sooner to discover what is most interesting in any locality than they are hurried from it. End quote. The tortoises were probably pleased to see him go. It is ironic today that the Charles Darwin Research Center in the Galapagos Islands has a highly successful tortoise breeding program when Darwin seemed to prefer them for dinner. Still, the Galapagos Islands were not able to support large human populations, and there is little to no evidence of permanent human habitation before the Columbian era. Then, periods used by pirates and whalers who did a lot of ecological damage and ate a lot of tortoises. Even today, they have a low population and rely heavily on the tourism industry. If I ever give a political message on this podcast, it would be that you should not go there, and nor should anyone else, except scientists and conservationists. Return the islands to their tortoise masters and preserve them. Okay. I had planned to get Darwin all the way home today but I think that we will need one last episode as we still need to get him to Tahiti, New Zealand, Australia, the Maldives, Mauritius and eventually on to England. I know, he sounds like he is hitting literally every dream holiday destination in an exciting world tour. Thanks for listening, take care and bye for now. If you want to get in touch... I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.